tonight's podcast is produced in partnership with the lovely literary people at Abbey's Bookshop in Sydney in Australia at 131 York Street. This Aladdin's Cave for Readers is full of jewels and has been family run since 1968. Listeners to the Literary Salon can go to abbeys.com.au and get a 10% discount on all fiction ooh, ooh, by entering Salon in caps at the checkout. Thank you, Abbeys. Uh, so up next, we have a change in our schedule. We did have Zia had a Roman. He is not here, unfortunately. Um, but hugely fortunately, like beyond fortunately, I'm very excited to have with me a very good friend um, and colleague. We used to work together at the Times, although we never actually met there. Um, uh, but um, the woman I'm about to introduce is the lovely Natalie Haynes. She is a, a writer, uh, a former comedian, although she remains very funny. Um, and uh, <laughs> she can be very often heard on Radio 4. Do you get radio? Did they get radio? Do you get Radio 4 here, BBC Radio 4? I'm sure you can pirate it. Um, any, anyway, you shouldn't pirate things, that's bad. Um, but um, anyway, she is a, a member of the British Humanist Association. She's on the board of that. Um, she is one of the sanest, most humane, and yet funniest people I've met. She's written a book called The Ancient Guide to Modern Life, um, uh, which is non-fiction, and a novel called The Amber Fury, and she's going to read a little bit from that just now. Please welcome the wonderful Natalie Haynes. Hello, hello. Um, so if you don't mind, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to read a tiny bit uh, for you and use the rest of that reading time to talk to you a little bit about Greek tragedy, uh, which will be fun. Yes. Whether you like it or not. Um, so uh, and that now sounds like a threat, of course. Uh, but I wouldn't want you to think that we'd lock the doors, uh, not with Plague Lady in the room. Um, <laughs> are the windows so, open? The windows are open. Hi. The windows yeah. are open, but you can't get out. I'm just saying. Um, so uh, I wanted to talk to you about Greek tragedy because my novel, um, Amber Fury, is a modern day Greek tragedy. It's set in uh, Edinburgh in Scotland and also a little bit in London. Uh, and it is, uh, I hope, a contemporary Greek tragedy. Um, it's in five acts, and it's about a woman who has suffered a terrible bereavement before the book begins, um, who goes away from London, where she has been working and living, um, to, she goes back to Edinburgh, where she had been a student, um, to teach uh, younger students, sort of 15-year-old students, at a pupil referral unit, i.e. a place where... Um, children who have behaved sufficiently badly to be thrown out of regular school uh, get sent. Um, and she tries very hard to win them over. She's teaching them drama. She tries very hard to win them over with um, uh, Shakespeare and, uh, and other more contemporary plays. Um, and the first thing she can find that they don't know they hate yet is uh, Oedipus the King. Because if you're trying to win over recalcitrant teens, I think we can all agree that uh, patricide and incest is the absolute way to do it. Um, <laughs> I, I stand by this. Uh, and so the plays that she reads with them, firstly, Oedipus, um, which is, of course, the, the, as far as Aristotle was concerned, and he was, let's not forget, no slouch, uh, structurally <laughs> the greatest tragedy written. Um, and uh, she reads, so she reads that. She reads Euripides' Alcestis, which is a not very well-known tragedy, not least because, sorry to spoil the end, you've had two and a half thousand years to read it, your fault, not mine. Um, it, it has a happy ending. Um, and then she reads the Oresteia. Um, those of you who are especially classic C will realize that the title, the Amber Fury, brackets, known as the Furies in America, so you don't get the pun, um, is, a, is a play on words for um, Electra is the Greek word for Amber. Um, so well done if you got that extremely There are three people pun. nodding at the back looking yeah. really smug. That's yes. the most I ever hoped for. They were really three. good. Um, but Greek tragedy is a huge part of uh, the novel because as they learn these tragedies, um, 
various terrible things play out. You'll find out a little bit more in a minute when I read the beginning. Um, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about why I think Greek tragedy is the, the great humanist invention um, of the Greeks. Um, just to give you some backstory, before Aeschylus, there is no such thing as Greek tragedy. Not really. Um, there is one person on stage. Um, it might have been Thespis, uh, from which we get the word thespian. And he would have delivered a monologue, maybe singing and dancing with a chorus behind him. Um, th and that was called a tragoidos. Um, and people have thought hard about the origin of that word, um, but it most probably means goat song. And then there are lots of reasons for why it might mean goat song, at least one of which is the Greeks are intensely competitive. They love everything is in competition. Whenever people talk about how competition is unreasonable when comparing books or films or plays, we should remember that at the beginning of art, competition exists. The Greeks can never resist a competition. Um, and so it's, it's possible that it's called a tragoidos, a goat song, because um, whoever did the best performance in front of the people of Athens um, was rewarded with a goat, something which I would really <laughs> like to bring back <laughs> Maybe at the Oscars. <laughs> because doesn't that sound better now than that endless red carpet? Can we see your manicure? No, you can't see my manicure, you freak. Why are you looking at someone you don't know's hands? You're so weird and rude. Instead of that, you get to see their goat paraded up a carpet. That sounds better, right? Good, I'm glad we agree. Um, so uh, there's Thespis, and he does his tragoidos, his uh, solitary performance. And then Aeschylus comes along, and he invents invents from nothing the idea of the second actor. So before Aeschylus, no conversation ever happens on stage, ever. There's no drama. And then Aeschylus happens, and there is drama, right? And he, of course, writes the Oresteia, of which more perhaps later, depending on whether or not you read the book, but I'm not going to give it away. Um, and then Sophocles comes along, and he notices that Aeschylus has two people on stage talking to each other, and he thinks, what would happen if somebody came on stage now and said, you'll never guess what I've heard? And thus, all drama, that when there's more than two people on stage, we owe to Sophocles, who also, sidebar, invents the murder mystery, which, of course, Oedipus is, the first great murder mystery. Um, at the beginning of the play, there is plague. Oh, topical. Uh, there is plague in Thebes, um, and, uh, and the people of Thebes come to their king, to Oedipus, and say, King, there is plague. What are you going to do about it? Um, and they get the message that uh, the city harbors the man who killed the previous king, killed King Laius. Uh, by the end of the play, we really know who killed the previous king. It starts as a whodunit. It ends as a, us knowing whodunit. And also, uh, by the way, the, the great first great uh, stage detective, TV detective, is from Sophocles, uh, it is Ajax, in the Ajax, which begins with uh, the goddess Athene uh, telling uh, Odysseus that he's walking across the beach. She says, you're like one of your hunting hounds, um, tracking footprints, what are you doing? And he says, there's been a crime committed, and I've heard from people um, that Ajax was seen going this way, so I'm following these footprints. They saw him with a, a bloody weapon. So in other words, he's following the footprints, having spoken to some eyewitnesses to mm. try and find out who came. This is Cluedo. Can we all just <laughs> be a, There we are. So I'm going to read you, um, instead of uh, one of those very brilliant, the nice thing about having... Uh, Sophocles lurking around in your book is it means when people ask what the best bit of the book is, the answer is always the dedication, uh, which is from the Antigone. Um, and if you can't think of a question, when Damien asks you for questions, the right question would be, tell us about the dedication, because it's a good answer. I'm just telling you so you know. <laughs> and, uh, and dictating your choices. Uh, and now the nice thing is that I'm quite old now, so it's really hard for me to read in the dark, but I'm going to do it. Um, and uh, I'm going to do it like this. No, I'm, gonna, I'm okay, pushing okay. through. Go for it, go for I'm it. I'm pushing through. Um, so I'm not going to read you the prologue for reasons that you'll have to guess. Um, I will instead read you the beginning. It has two narrators, this book. Uh, 
One is uh, Alex, the heroine, or at least the protagonist, um, and the other is uh, a diary entry which belongs to one of her students. You'll have to wait and see who. So, chapter one of The Amber Fury. The first thing they'll ask me is how I met her. They already know how we met, of course, but that won't be why they're asking. It never is. I remember when Luke was training, he told me that you only ever ask a question if you already know the answer. Lawyers don't like surprises, least of all when they're on the record. So they won't be asking because they want to know the date, the time, the address, or the little details. They'll have done their homework, I'm sure. They've spoken to Robert, my old boss, already, so they know when I arrived in Edinburgh and which day I started work. They probably have a copy of my timetable. If they wanted to, they could pinpoint our first meeting to the minute. They won't be asking because they want to know what I'll say. They'll just want to know how I say it. Will my eyes go right or left? Am I remembering or inventing? They'll be measuring my truth against the one they have from other witnesses gauging whether I can be trusted or whether I'm a liar. So when they ask, I'm not going to roll my eyes and tell them they're wasting my time. I'm not going to tell them that I can hardly bear to go over this again, that every time someone asks me, I have to live through it all over again. I'm not going to ask if they know what it feels like, holding up the weight of everything that happened. I won't make a fuss. It wouldn't help. I'm going to take a small breath, look straight ahead, and tell them the truth. I can't get nervous and start rattling on about how I didn't plan to be in Edinburgh. I won't ask them to remember what had happened to me and why I'd had to run away from London, why I was in Scotland at all. I won't remind them that I could have had no inkling of how terribly things would turn out. Besides, even if I had, I wouldn't have cared. I didn't care about anything then. I'm just going to answer as simply as I can. I met them on the 6th of January, 2011, in the basement room at 58 Rankeela Street. And I wouldn't have believed any of them could do something so monstrous. Ba, ba, ba. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that reading. It was wonderful, Thank as you. always. Um, so, you know, you've, you've put the book in a five-act structure and it got me, got me to thinking about, you know, what else is remaining with us um, from, from that time? I mean, we take for granted the five-act structure for all, for all drama um, and for, for some novels. What, what else is, is still here now that we think we might think we invented ourselves but actually has been around since... Everything. You know, everything. Every, the Greeks invented everything, and if they didn't, the Romans did. Generally. Generally yeah, speaking. Yeah, I mean, the, there's a... I made a radio documentary at the same time as I was writing um, The Ancient Guide to Modern Life, which is the non-fiction one, which is all about the parallels between the ancient world and the modern world. Um, and, uh, and that was begun, actually, from a piece I wrote for The Times when we were both there, I think, um, when they asked me, Gordon Brown, um, who was Prime Minister after... God, I should know this, Tony Blair, and before... David Cameron, um, was a, a sort of celebratedly um, grouchy-seeming man. And the Times comment desk asked me if I would write a, a column on what ancient leader he was most like. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, so I wrote a piece about how he was basically the modern-day incarnation of the Emperor Tiberius, um, minus the, oh, the people who are laughing now, little inner pat on the back, well done you. Oh, yeah, brilliant. He, he is like, for those of you who didn't get that, oh, we pity you. Um, <laughs> but uh, I went through all the kind of most recent modern leaders of Britain and a little bit of America. Um, if I'd known that you had a crazed hair puller in New Zealand, I would totally <laughs> have added him to the list. But who knew? Um, and so it all kind of stemmed from there. But in terms of Greek tragedy, everything, even, it sounds like one of the, it bothers me a lot when Greek tragedy gets kind of cornered as it's high art, it's for people in theatres who can afford, you know, $100 for a ticket. Yeah. It just isn't. You know, when Aeschylus and Euripides and Sophocles were putting on their trilogies of plays, well, quadrilogies of plays, three tragedies and a satire play, uh, which is uh, full of satires and uh, stick-on fallacies, uh, mainly. That's, sadly, they haven't survived, but uh, that's what it would be like. Well, there's Sounds a bit great. of a, a Sophocles play called The Trackers, uh, which Tony uh, Harrison has... Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, and, uh, and, you know, these would have been a, a huge social event in Athens. It, would all, it might have just been men, but all of the men of Athens would have been there. Um, and uh, it would have been... It's, it's they happen at the Dionysia, so the festival to celebrate Dionysus. So you weren't just celebrating theatre, you're celebrating wine. Mm. So if you want to see a Greek tragedy the way they were intended, you should be drunk, really. <laughs> really. You and a have man, a, possibly, Yeah, well, well. yeah, you should have a couple of glasses of wine and a, you know, and a barbecue, because they would have had a big sacrifice. So it would have smelled like an abattoir, and, uh, and everybody would have been there. It wouldn't have been reserved, any more than Shakespeare was reserved for the rich intelligentsia. It was for ordinary people. And then somehow we got to a position where knowing about or liking um, tragedy was somehow reserved. But I, I interviewed a bunch of people for a radio doc uh, about Greek tragedy and soap opera. And it turns out almost all soap operas are stolen from Greek tragedies. They, they, and I quote a man who, uh, who wrote on EastEnders, the British uh, Do you soap. have EastEnders here? They you do, they yeah. Do and, and, um, I, I spoke to him about... They have unity of time and place, right? We can agree. They're, they yes. are linear in time. Yep. Um, EastEnders is set in the East End. Coronation Street is set... In the north. It's Coronation Street, well done. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, since we're in New Zealand, Shortland Street is set... Um, there it is. So they have unity of time, they have unity of place, but also they have massive plot overlaps. And I saw the ideas boards they've got, like, you know, al almost always tragedy, clippings from newspapers, woman runs over her own child, uh, taped up to the wall. Um, but they also have the titles of Greek tragedies. Do right they up really? There. Yeah. And I said, are you really telling me when you can't work out what to do with EastEnders, you, you try and put a bit of extra Greek tragedy in it? And he said, yeah, we sit in meetings and we say, and I quote, is there any way we can Greek it up? Oh my God, that's brilliant. Because tragedy is full of families against families. So exactly yeah. the same as soap, right? You know, they have Opposing clans, exactly. loyalties. Brothers against brothers, parents against children, children yeah. against parents, spouses against spouses. That's the only play he said they hadn't managed to use was Medea. They yeah. tried to introduce two characters and he was having an affair and she, was, she killed the children. But of course, that's the, the difference between tragedy and soap is... 90 minutes is Medea. That's a week's worth of EastEnders. She can't come back next week. She's in prison for the next 20 years. <laughs> so it doesn't always work. But yeah, the, the lower the art, the more likely it is to steal from the Greeks in my experience. So, so soap operas, we, we, we have Greek tragedy there, but we do have an other kind of long-form tally. And when I, when I was watching, uh, I watched Battlestar Galactica, so the good. epic uh, science fiction show. And, so I, and, and I, I'm glad to hear you say that. I think it's amazing. I was suspicious of it because of the genre. Um, um, but in actual fact, it's just the most incredible piece of drama. And it is all about 
the Odyssey is yeah. people trying to, to find their way home. People trying to come home. Yeah. And that's why a nostos is what happens in the Odyssey, right? A return journey, a journey home is a nostos. So when people have nostalgia, they're not actually thinking about the past. They have grief for their homeland. Isn't that a beautiful origin? Nostalgia. Um, but yeah, absolutely it is. And also The Wire. Have you seen The Wire? Okay, so the first three seasons of The Wire, the story arc of Stringer Bell, is exactly the story arc of uh, Oedipus. Exactly the same thing. I don't want to spoil it for those of you who might watch it, but it's exactly the they same. They may have watched it and not understood it because of the subtitle issue. <laughs> I mean, I started oh. watching it with the subtitles on, but yes, you're right, it is the same. Man, I loved The Wire. Loved it. Oh, Battlestar Galactica better than The Wire, I think. <gasps> no, no, I'm just going to put that out there. Differently so, lovely. Definitely lovely. Can we lovely. go with okay, that? Okay, fine. Okay, fine. Okay. Um, so you're very much involved in defending the classics in the United Kingdom. You're yes, kind of I our go-to woman for, <laughs> for that um, and for which we love you. Yeah, um, thanks. Do, you know, is there really a place in the contemporary curriculum where teachers are struggling and resources are, we are told, ever, you know, scarcer for, for teaching, you know, stuff that's, that's this dusty? Well, I guess I would argue that it isn't dusty, um, but that it is constant and vibrant and still alive just because people don't speak a language doesn't mean... I, I feel the opposite question is true. Is it really all right to deprive an entire generation of children from being able to read things which are incredible? Incredible, and which will inspire you for the rest of your life. I was so lucky I got to do Latin at school mm. and then Greek, and my whole career is predicated on it. It gave me everything. I, I would be nothing without it. And so, yeah, I feel like the people are deprived of it. And so I do see that the curriculum has only a limited amount of space. Mm -hmm. I, I would like all children to be able to have the chance to learn any sort of classics, Latin, Greek, classical civilization, ancient history. I don't mind what it is. I'm not a snob about it. Um, but I, I understand there's pressure. The good thing is that classicists are really hardcore. Um, and so there are loads and loads of classicists uh, who work for programs like uh, the IRIS Project or Classics for All, which send students into primary schools to teach primary school children Latin if they want to learn it. They don't have to, of course, although I would make them what I wouldn't make them what I would. Um, <laughs> um, but also, it's worth pointing out, f since you are Scottish, um, that. Uh, a huge chunk. Scotland had an enormous mm. um, influence on, in, on Latin in uh, the later part of its history. And at one point in, I think, the 18th century, but don't quote me, uh, a quarter of Scotland's history was being written in Latin. Scottish Latinists are a huge thing. I didn't know anything about this until I made a radio documentary, but they're a huge thing. So when you stop, I think there's virtually now no um, state school provision of Latin in Scotland. Mm. When you cut children off from Latin, you're not just cutting them off from Virgil, which, by the way, is basically the same as punching each of them once in the face, but you're cutting them off from their own relatively recent history. And that, too, seems to me like, you know, giving them a small kick while they're down. I mean, I have to, uh, I, I, <laughs> Nicely odd. Oh, she's like, yeah, it's a shame. <laughs> it's not actually happening. It's all right. <laughs> they're not actually punching the children of Scotland one at a time. <laughs> Don't worry. Oh, thanks very much. <laughs> I mean, I, I, growing up in Scotland and going to school there, you know, many of my teachers who did feel like they were from um, from Greece 2,000 years ago, but but many of them had, you know, did did, did have their Latin um, and would sneak bits of it into. It wasn't on our curriculum, and it was only in when I went to Texas when I was a student in, uh, in Texas that I did a year of Latin. Yeah. And I have to say, it was hugely helpful. It's amazing. You know, it was you just all kinds of things began to click into place. You know, in terms of grammar and structure. And as a writer, I think it's just you know, enormously helpful. Of course it is. Hugely helpful. Of course it is. Who wants to ask Natalie the question about her prologue? <laughs> You're allowed to ask another question, but you should finish on the dedication question. That I'm man just there. Saying. 
Um, oh. I love Greek comedy. I love Aristophanes, especially. Old comedy is my absolute favourite. Um, when Menander comes on board, um, then frankly, just poke my eyes out with a stick, Oedipus style, and leave me to die on the ground because <laughs> there is nothing I like less. Um, but old comedy, for those of you who um, haven't been doing quite as much homework as that extremely impressive gentleman, uh, well done. Um, <laughs> She'll old see comedy you after. is basically masses of scabrous political humour um, and loads of, I mean, the, the Case in point would be, uh, I guess, the Lysistrata, um, when the women of uh, Aristophanes Lysistrata, the women of, of Greece are sick and tired of the men being at endless war because of the Peloponnesian War, which has dragged on for decades. Um, and so they all get together uh, with the, the women of Athens, the women of Sparta and Corinth all get together and they make a pledge, which is that they won't have sex with their husbands or boyfriends until the war is stopped. And they make a very um, solemn pledge. Instead of sacrificing a victim, uh, an animal victim, they sacrifice a wineskin for its comedy. Uh, and then they drink it and get drunk and, uh, <laughs> and they swear off sex. And it would be good anyway, but it is especially funny because they are all massive nymphomaniacs. Uh, <laughs> and so they are desperate to have sex, but can't because they promised and they're drunk. Um, and all the Men are desperate to have sex and aren't, and so they all walk on with huge stick on penis and so on and so on. And it is brilliant and critical and political and everything I love. And then Menander comes along and it's it's what becomes Shakespearean comedy, i.e. there's some long lost twins, one of them has a locket and you don't kill me. No, wait, kill you. You started it, Menander. <laughs> so I'm a massive fan of old comedy and new comedy, meh, is what I have to say. I don't like comedy again then until juvenile who I love, even though he's a terrible, terrible person, I should say, before you think I'm endorsing him as a racist, misogynist, anti-Semitic, xenophobic, appalling, appalling man. He is nonetheless a brilliant comedian. It turns out you don't always have to be nice to be good. Do you even know who gave us, I think, who, who will watch The Watcher? Uh, yeah, Quiz Custodia Episodes Custodes, uh, which um, people always quote for uh, civil liberties reasons. And I'm a big fan of civil liberties. I hate CCTV, which, of course, Britain is covered in, uh, because yeah. there's nothing we apparently like more than someone we don't know in an office somewhere masturbating over our postcode. I can't tell you why, we just <laughs> like it. But whenever it's debated on the news, there is always a very po-faced person from a civil liberties thing saying, ah, oh, yes, but of course, who guards the guards themselves? And I always want to write it in and say, I'm not sure you know where this comes from, but it's from Juvenile Satire 6, the one on women, um, which is extremely long. It's, it's longer than two or three of his other satires put together. It's a whole book in itself. So he really hates women. And the opening, I, I think he's, it opens by him saying to his friend, I don't know why you'd want to get married um, when there's so much rope available by the yard. Um, Nice. That's the opening of this, of this satire, this scurrup, perhaps. Um, and he goes on a huge spiel and says, you know, you can't get married because if, you know, she's, she'll either be stupid because she's uneducated and that'll be boring, or she'll be educated and she'll correct your Greek and that'll be annoying. I bet that's happened. Um, <laughs> and uh, she'll be, you know, if her mother's alive, it'll just be terrible. Uh, and you'll never get a moment's peace and she'll spend all your money or she'll be rich and she won't let you spend any money. It's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible. And she'll also be a massive slut and she'll sleep with all your friends and she'll sleep with the eunuchs she doesn't get pregnant, um, <laughs> so you won't find out. And, uh, and he, by the way, will have a massive penis and that'll be annoying for you. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and then she'll sleep with all your friends and that'll be humiliating for you. Um, and the only thing you could do, I guess, is you could hire a bodyguard. You could hire a bodyguard and that would stop her from sleeping with your friends. Do you know what she's gonna do then? She's gonna sleep with the bodyguard. <laughs> And that's where he says it, quis custodiat ipsos custode. So whenever people quote it, they're like, oh, CCTV. What they're quoting is the moment where Juvenal says, there's the impossibility of getting your slutty wife to stop sleeping with all your friends because you've hired a bodyguard to stop her from doing that. She's now sleeping with the guy you hired to stop her from sleeping with all your friends. <laughs> there it is.
<laughs> That's an amazing place to end our first half. Thank you, Natalie Hayes. We'll be back in half welcome. an hour with Ben Oakley. Thank you so much. Right, so the dedication. So, um, Ancient Guide, sorry, sorry everyone for your interval. You can go, I won't, I won't mind if you want to go to the loo. Um, the dedication for Ancient Guide, I dedicated it to Dan. This is Dan. Ooh, lovely Aww. Dan. Yeah, I know, we love Dan. They're um, all checking him out now, like, who? Ooh, yeah. Yeah, hot Dan, everyone's saying. Um, the dedication of Ancient Guide is Horace, uh, which is uh, Ode 39, for those of you who are fans, which is the duet um, where uh, Horace and his ex-girlfriend are talking, and he says, you know, I don't miss you at all, and she goes, I don't miss you either. And he says, my new girlfriend's really cute, and she goes, my new boyfriend is young and cute. And he goes, I really miss you, please take me back. Um, and she says, um, very sweetly, she says, amongst other things, she says, with you I'd love to live, and with you I'd gladly die. So it was a good dedication, I think we're agreed. Yes. And then when um, I was writing Amber, uh, it was while well, I was judging the Man Booker Prize. Um, and so which I, she awarded to Eleanor Catton. Which I did award to Eleanor Catton, I know I did. Uh, oh, you guys. Um, and, uh, and so I, and it's that thing, that publishing thing, back me up authors, um, yes. where you ha they have like 10 years to go, could you just send us the dedication and this and this and this? Yes. And they wait till 15 minutes before the last possible second and go, could you just send it in in 15? No, I don't, I'm reading 151 novels in 204 days. And if that sounds like fun, it was, but it was also a bit like being bludgeoned to death with a library. So. <laughs> I knew I had to come from a Greek tragedy because the book is about Greek tragedy and it's really hard to find a romantic bit of a Greek <laughs> tragedy because they're mainly about people wishing other people dead or killing them. And then I had one of those moments where I realised that the, the thing I was looking for was in the Antigone and so I quested the Antigone um, and, uh, in like 10 seconds between books. Mm, um, and it comes from the Agone, or as I would like to call it, the Ding Dong, um, the fight between uh, Creon and his son Hymon. Uh, Creon at this point has condemned Antigone to death um, sorry to spoil it, you've had ages. Um, and, uh, and Hymon is uh, trying to persuade him to relent. Hymon is both his son and also Antigone's fiancé, because they haven't had enough of incest in that family. Um, uh, and uh, well, the incest is, it doesn't matter, you don't need to hear about it. So uh, Hymon comes to his father and says, you know, of course you're right, but everyone kind of wants you to, to relent. Uh, but you're right to be angry, but maybe you could, you know, find a bit of humanity in your heart. And Creon says, no, she did the wrong thing and she knew it was wrong. And Hyman says, okay, but if that's how unbending you are, then the only place you could be king of is a desert island with no one else living there because no one else could live up to your standards. And Creon is so angry that his son has um, betrayed him by, by disagreeing with him that he turns away from him and he speaks maybe to the chorus or maybe to us, maybe to the audience. Um, and he says, Hode, Hoseoike, Tergunaike, Sumake. This man, it seems to me, fights alongside his woman. And that's what I dedicated my novel with. Aww. You're really welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Tonight's podcast is produced in partnership with the lovely literary people at Abbey's Bookshop in Sydney in Australia. This Aladdin's Cave for Readers is full of jewels and has been family-run since 1968. Listeners to the Literary Salon can go to abbeys.com.au and get a 10% discount on all fiction by entering SALON in caps at the checkout. Thank you, Abbey's.